Awesome. So yeah, I would love for you to introduce yourself and then we can get started talking about Palestine. Yeah, sure. So um, my name's um, Kieran. I'm a PhD international relations student at the University of Sussex in Brighton, um, focusing on radical decolonial theory as it relates to Palestine solidarity activism, particularly in terms of my work as an activist with the British Direct Action Network, Palestine Action, that uses direct action as a means in which to um, target the Israeli arms manufacturer, Elbit Systems, um, which is Israel's largest private arms company. Um, so my work is kind of situated in trying to draw out the theory and practice of Palestine action as it relates to um, a radicalization, I'm arguing, of the BDS movement and BDS tactics as it relates mm -hmm. to the both the decolonization of Palestine, but also in meeting with material force and solidarity, um, racial capitalism. Awesome. Um, so those are great subjects to pick up on. And first, my, my immediate question from that is, in studying the changing nature of the BDS movement and of the uh, solidarity campaigns for Palestine, what changes have you observed uh, even recently uh, in, the, in how the solidarity campaigns have changed, their tactics, their goals, um, and their, their, like their long-term objective? And I would just say, I mean, one thing that strikes me is like a change in uh, focus. So like, again, kind of similarly, I, I study uh, the, compar the comparison of South Africa and and Palestine with respect to the term apartheid and like that yeah. historical condition. And there's been obviously a greater adoption of that, but there's also been this correlating desire to have kind of an anti-apartheid campaign in, in and for Palestine to focus on a post Oslo Accords, kind of a one state solution rather than a, a pre or, you know, whatever you want to call it, as opposed to the previous two state solution, which obviously doesn't exist anymore never really existed so that's one area that i see like a lot of changing uh debate and discussion with respect to goals and long-term objectives but i'm curious for your research like what you've observed with the changing uh movement so there's a few good things to pick up on there um the first actually is that there's a really good article by she's actually my supervisor by linda Tabar. Um, that focuses on the shifts in solidarities with Palestine since the um, 1960s, 1970s kind of global revolutionary forces, um, especially in regards to the Palestine Liberation Organization, um, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, and obviously their links to other radical anti-racist anti-colonial forces such as the Black Panther Party, the American Indian Movement, and obviously the solidarities in the global struggle against apartheid in South Africa. But she notes, as you kind of um, noted on a bit there, that through the Oslo Accords in the 1990s and into the 2000s, you start getting a shift in the forms of solidarity towards what she kind of terms a form of like NGOization and liberalization of the solidarities with Palestine. So rather than this kind of radical internationalist practice, which, see, which conceives of, you know, imperialism as a global system which all these different 
social forces are kind of coming together to meet in their local conditions, um, it starts to see Palestine as this unique case of conflict, you know, all these kind of international relations, like language comes in and these kind of framings as it's like a conflict or it's, or even if apartheid is used, it's not used by that many people. And it's seen as this kind of like distinct case where South Africa is this other distinct case rather than these are sites of accumulation, colonialism and violence connected to global systems. And therefore the forms of solidarity are connected to that's all kind of disconnected. And she notes how that those forms of solidarity consisted of um, kind of activists in the West going to Palestine. I mean, I think today is actually the anniversary of the death of Rachel Corey, um, killed by an Israeli bulldozer, I think in 2002. Um, and those are the forms of activism. I mean, that's a, that's a specific example, of actually a radical form of, of activism and solidarity, but she notes how it becomes NGOized. Um, it's more about um, kind of charity institutions. It becomes about human rights. That's the main framing rather than say liberation and decolonization. Um, but then with the emergence of the BDS movement, that, that then forces a shift in framings and strategies in a similar way to those radical forms prior in the, in the forms of revolutionary decolonization and kind of revolutionary movements in the 60s and 70s. But obviously for our, for our present moment, drawing upon the radical internationalism of um, the, anti the global anti-apartheid struggle for South Africa. Um, but also then drawing upon um, contemporary emergences of I guess, decolonial thought of indigenous resurgence of discussions around land back and stuff and things like that. So this, so this three kind of main shifts that I've seen both in framing theory, and that's kind of academic as well, a kind of social struggle theory, and then in practice, in terms of framing, as we started to see people are now picking up on the apartheid framework, um, international institutions such as Amnesty, uh, human Rights Watch, and then obviously Israeli human rights all such as Betzalem, finally, after literally decades and decades of an apartheid system coming out and finally calling it apartheid. Um, it's well known that Palestinian writers and scholars understood this and cited this as apartheid as far back as Bayez Sayeg in 1965, his famous paper Zionist colonialism in Palestine cites it as an apartheid de facto system. Edward Said terms it as an apartheid colonial system in his book, The Question of Palestine in 1979. So these institutions we could say are quite late coming around to this kind of language. But we're also seeing that these institutions are behind the general framings that are starting to be used around Palestine and used by the BDS movement, such as the frames of, again, colonialism, of secular colonialism. And there's a good article by Palestinian Lana Tafur, um, on saying how the apartheid framework is yes, has to be part of it. They are committed, Israel is committing the international crime of apartheid, but it has to be seen through a separate colonial framework, um, which is kind of the, the way in which South Africa has been conditioned as this exceptional case of apartheid, rather than seeing it as well part of the subsequent um, formation of the settler colonial structure um, and the racial capitalist structure in South Africa. So the, the framings of apartheid are obviously useful, but they're clearly behind the actual movement itself, the BDS movement itself and, and the um, frameworks of settler colonialism that are being employed. In terms of theory, there's good work by people like um, 
Andy Clarno, who recently wrote a book comparing, as you might know, yeah, um, from comparing South Africa and Palestine through articulating structures of racial capitalism and settler colonialism. Um, there's some other articles that I've seen as well talking about how, well, obviously there's continuations of effective forms of apartheid in South Africa. And that's because although judicially and legally the apartheid system was deconstructed, there's an ongoing structure of apartheid through the racial capitalist order. And so it's those kind of um, forewarnings, we might say, from South Africa, which give and require um, a radical theory in Palestine that necessitates an analysis of things like racial capitalism, of things like colonialism, and not merely apartheid, is seeing apartheid as this political structure. There's an article as well around Kano, written by um, Palestinian academic Haida Eid, basically talking about how it needs to center this kind of whole, more whole analysis, this kind of totality of colonialism in Palestine, which again, these kind of frameworks of apartheid, or at least apartheid in a very liberal international law kind of way, are very, very behind the radical theory it's kind of needed. Um, in terms of practice, and this is where I think where my work comes in, is that I think what we're seeing with BDS is a radicalization. There's parts of you know the BDS movement that are kind of or elements of it at least that I kind of institutionalized do things like the Palestine Solidarity Campaign in Britain, you know, which does good work, but their focus is very much on the general kind of public and political spheres. It's about lobbying MPs, it's about trying to push for policy changes which as we're seeing with the massive attempts to suppress Palestinian activism and BDS activism to ban BDS, the British government um, here is trying to ban BDS at the moment and stop local councils and institutions from being able to divest from illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank. And obviously we have the ongoing battles on campuses and institutions with the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, especially in places like Europe. Um, the work of Anna Esther Yunus is really good on this. And she notes how, um, IHRA debates are being used basically as a vanguard for war on terror legislation in Germany. So all these things are kind of wrapped up in discourses and kind of practices of borderization and, and imperialism. Um, but what's happening, I think, to BDS as a movement is that it's BDS as a set of tactics, as a set of frameworks are being taken by kind of autonomous social groups being radicalized. Um, into forms of effective, more material and effective action, I think, away from the kind of dominating political structures which are refusing to actually engage with or trying to ban it. And this is why I think Palestine action is situated. And this is um, the kind of primary argument of my research is that I think Palestine action is, I guess you could say like the spearhead of the BDS movement in the way that I think people are wanting to radicalize it and direct action is the key way in which that can be done. So activists um, in my research have said how, you know, you have boycott, divestment and sanctions. We are enforcing sanctions through direct action. Um, and I think, at least in my understanding, that this is where BDS is going. That's taking on more radical theory, more radical framings and more radical praxis, um, which conceives of Palestine in its kind of international context of both oppression, but also um, radical forms of resistance. Well, j just before going more in depth on that, it, it's really funny that you mentioned Andy Clarno because I actually got a chance to speak to him earlier today. 
uh, about neoliberal apartheid because it's one of the books that I'm also studying. My my research uh, here at Cornell is primarily similarly on like the evolving use of the term apartheid and and how it's changed from you know being used in this kind of historically specific way that even you start to see a change while apartheid still legally and judicially existed in South Africa with people like Samir Amin writing about a global apartheid and putting it in more into like a world systems analysis. But, but on the note of, of the changing radicalism, uh, that, that really fascinates me because I think that's been a subject for a lot of students that I um, kind of am with in, in the, like for example, the Students for Justice in Palestine uh, on American campuses are often kind of at a loss for what to do next. Uh, it can feel very, very frustrating when it comes to, for example, something like BDS, when it, it's taken as a really big victory to get the unit, like pass something in like your student government to get, you know, call on the university, the university ignores it and, and more often actually comes out and condemns it in this really blatant manner. Um, but I wonder a, a couple of questions. So one is to what extent does the activism of not obviously not just students, but civil society, general uh, activists against apartheid in South Africa play a role in informing, because that's a lot of what I've seen, right? Is like people compare activism now in support of Palestine to what had previously been done against South Africa during its legalized apartheid of students, you know, uh, having these massive demonstrations, sit-ins and pushing for divestment. Divestment was one of the big things. And I wonder if with some retrospects, our perspective on divestment campaigns with South Africa kind of takes a, a different, like from a much more radical perspective, obviously takes a different perspective in that, for example, the US and, and the UK uh, divested from South Africa or officially sanctioned in whatever manner really only at the end when it was pretty clear the Cold War was over, South Africa could be uh, officially sanctioned and the shift towards what Patrick Bond talks about or even what Andy Clarno talks about of neoliberal apartheid, elite transition as Patrick Bond puts it, um, could be facilitated by, by Western capitalism, which is what the situation in South Africa is now. So I wonder that that I guess is the first part of the retrospect we can look at previous activities against apartheid in South Africa and, and think about what worked and what has led to the modern condition of, of um, intense racial capitalism with still in South Africa, um, even if the legal features of apartheid have been have changed. And then I guess the next question is if you, and, and less of a question more of like for you to talk more about the type of activities that uh, Palestine action in terms of direct action. So you mentioned going against Elbit I think that's a great example of like actually hurting Israel uh, in its military industrial complex in a way that does impact and does prevent people from being killed. That's something that we have thought a lot about on campus here at Cornell because our university partners with Technion Research Institute, which does a lot of this development of military research. And so that's one way that our camp, our local campus BDS movement has taken maybe a uh, look at okay what are the aspects of of israeli militarism that we can specifically go after so i guess those are two two topics i i'm curious to hear from you about 
Yeah, so on, on the first one, well, I think, as, as you put it really well, that I think this, the role that activists now play, and especially students, obviously continues to be massive. But now, because of that historical kind of hindsight and reflexivity upon that, um, well, well, there's two things. One, it, it, it's odd how I think there's, as I said, the focus on the mainstream political kind of processes in terms of BDS to try and get like policy changes. When, as I understand it, that's, that's not really, as you say, in terms of, especially at least in Britain and the US, the kind of sanctions and the um, kind of moving away from support for South Africa at the government level, at the level of the state, moved away really only at the end. And so I think it's, it's kind of odd to then see um, attempts to push, say, like the Labour Party here to try and support policies um, when that's not really the strategy of what happened in terms of South Africa, in terms of, the, at least in terms of the struggle here, it was much more kind of broader you know, civil society or autonomous radical social movements joining together, doing multiple forms of activity all over the place. Um, and then development of a stronger, more radical public consciousness on apartheid in South Africa in opposition to it, which then forced the state to have to change its position rather than going through the state mechanisms itself. I don't know whether that's a process of the kind of depoliticization of social activism um, under neoliberalism now um, or what, but I think there's an interesting thing there to, to reflect on, well, in terms of the anti-apartheid struggle, what were the actual social forces doing this? What were the social forces that were actually pushing this change in places like Britain and in places like the US and like kind of trying to reclaim that, um, what Linda DeBar in her article about on Solidarity with Palestine talks about as re the re-territorialization of solidarity in a, you know, place-based forms um, because of the ongoing complicities. In terms of, um, the reflexivity and the continuations of essentially forms of neoliberal apartheid and racial capitalism and coloniality, might, the coloniality we might say in South Africa, is that because of that, it has at least at a conceptual kind of framework level forced us to reflect on that and conceive of more, an attempt to conceive of more radical practices as you're kind of asking of, and I don't necessarily have the answers, but thinking about what can we do to make sure that Palestine doesn't become another case of South Africa, where you end an apartheid system and it, even if it ends in one state, you can still maintain the racial capitalist, you know, class structures, you can still maintain a racialized system um, of accumulation of Palestinians at the bottom of the, of the racialized class structure and white Ashkenazi Jews at the top of the class structure, even if it becomes a one state Palestine, right? Um, so this really forces us to rethink um, our theory and practice and engaging with this. And I think in terms of students, um, they need to be at the forefront of this. Um, so there's been attempts here um, to try and form networks of student activism in Britain. Um, there hasn't been yet uh, an actual consolidation of that. There's been attempt. I, I was involved in a student network that was attempting to do that, but kind of like burned out. And well, we, we attempted to do it during 
um, obviously COVID and then there's lockdowns and it's, it's hard enough to get students to organise and then trying to get them to organise when they can't even get onto campus, you know. But, but there are, but there are and have been attempts and there is obviously a growing consciousness on campuses around this. Um, just in, in terms of the British example, I mean, British universities have over 430 million pounds worth of investments in companies that are complicit, you know, whether that's uh, security companies such as G4S or Hewlett Packard or arms companies such as Raytheon, BAE Systems and Lockheed Martin. Um, so students need to be at the forefront of this. And But I guess in terms of a praxis, what I ran into and what many other students here have run into of the problem of BDS is not only the, you know, the attempt at a government crackdown, but it's much of the focus has been again a kind of institutional way of okay we're going to get like a policy in and we're going to get like a bds win through like the student union which is a which is a part of the practice and can be um you can be victorious in some places but what i and many others have tended to find is that that kind of institutional process i guess without a practice without the kind of like material activism at the same side and we're not necessarily you know i'm not necessarily saying that students need to go on and like smash up their uni but without um actual forms of material activism without that pressure um of other social forces um on the institution then people tend to run into the bureaucratic machinery of the university and get burned out and then it's like past like a year or so and then they leave because you know they finish their undergrad course and then nothing really changes or the university um the, the policy on bds like lapses and then they kind of re um, start redoing contracts and things like that so i think in looking at palestine action and then thinking at the role of other forms of activism even if one is attempting to go through certain institutions or political processes it has to be reminded and this is the point that erica makes in her um book uh, law and question of Palestine justice for some is that you know these kind of legal and political processes or these mainstream legal and political processes can be used as tools but they have to be used as tools of the back of a social movement and I think those are the parts where we can must be reminded of you know the realities of what actually happened of the of the apartheid of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa which has kind of been you know romanticized we all know as this kind of liberal dream where everyone was against apartheid when actually you know, it was radical socialist communism anarchists and social forces that were obviously pushing this from from the margins but doing that in such a way that I guess allows for um allows for an opening up of a reflexivity of okay apartheid ended but there was also a compromise with the state, a compromise with racial capitalism and a compromise with um, coloniality. So how do we, I guess, continue to push BDS, but also in a way that draws upon contemporary forms of radicalism? I'm thinking abolition movements. I'm thinking, as I said before, the resurgence of land back and decolonization questions of that, and also the language of racial capitalism. Um, and so this is the work of, again, people, as you say, like Andy Clarno, but then also people like Vanna Tatar, who are trying to very much emphasise you have to see this through this kind of broader totality of the project of oppression that's going on here, rather than the, this kind of liberal um, human rights framework. Um, I guess in terms of Palestine action, in terms of what is it actually you know, doing in its kind of praxis, um, so 
what Palace Election has been doing since 2020, as I said, is targeting Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest private arms company. Um, Elbit is known and is very famous and has carved a niche in the global arms and security market. I think it currently sits at the 30th large, largest arms company in the world. So it's not the largest, uh, like Lockheed Martin, but it holds a specific niche um, for processes and projects of population control, of social pacification, of um, containment um, and border projects. Um, so it markets its weapons as battle tested or combat proven on Palestinians. And that's the niche that it holds, is that because its weapons and technologies are utilized to suppress Palestinians, either through famously their drones, such as the Hermes 900, um, used regularly to either surveil the skies of or to bomb Gaza. Um, the Hermes 900 was actually, its, its deployment was sped up in the 2014 invasion, not because it was necessarily needed in combat, but because they wanted um, to accrue the marketing capabilities that battle tested um, would be able to perform for it in the international arms market. Elwitz uh, technologies uh, have been used in the apartheid annexation war in the West Bank. It's motion sensor technologies used for the security fence, the annexation fence around Gaza. And these have then been distributed out to the rest of the world, the US-Mexico border wall. The EU border agency Frontex uses Elbit drones to surveil the Mediterranean. Um, Elbit weaponry is likely used in Kashmir. Um, Elbit drones are being deployed by the UK Coast Guard and Maritime Agency. So it has all these global relationships. And it's that kind of global relationality of the material supply chains of Elbit, which Palestine Action seeks to disrupt, expose and destroy. Um, it does this by um, specifically targeting Elbit sites throughout Britain. So there's a number of uh, factories or subsidiary factories um, which produce components and weaponry, um, largely components for its drones, which then get exported off to Israel. Um, activists tend to block the sites, uh, such as using lock-ons um, on the gates to not allow basically workers in to stop production. A lot of the focus is basically about disrupting the very product, the materiality of the very production process um, for as long as possible. So that also includes rooftop occupations. Some, sometimes they last days. Um, and there has been a stepping up in that process as well of actually dismantling brick by brick, tile by tile, these buildings um, to basically stop production for as long as possible. It's also through that kind of actual material action where there is a very radical kind of what I'm um, referred to as like consciousness raising and conscientious. Uh, conscientization because the way the actions operate in these local communities you know these factories you wouldn't know what they're doing you know, they're in very obscure towns uh, in England places like Oldham and Manchester um, places like Tamworth and Leicester you know literally you know that they UAV engine subsidiary which creates parts for its drones um, is in a is in a small town um, and this kind of action works to expose 
this kind of very dark, very private kind of um, arms industry um, from their local sites in Britain. So what the actions work to do is not only materially stop the supply process of weapons to Israel and actually causing millions and millions of pounds worth of damage from Palestine action has caused at least over 20 million pounds worth of damage to Elbit Systems factories. Uh, so far, um, there have been over 130 people, I think, have taken action, or those are the ones that I think have been arrested, because um, there are other actions where people have not been arrested. And so far, no one has been um, convicted. Um, and so Palestine, the, the kind of power of Palestine action is to use the materiality of what activists term concrete solidarity to re-territorialize solidarity in our local places and our local communities to actually stop these materials, to stop the supply chains and supporting the occupation. But it does that through a global recognition of Israel's and Elbit's role in the global proliferation of arms, security technologies, and these kind of relations of oppression. So I think in link, trying to link that to the first question about reinterpreting like our kind of visions and praxis and kind of what are we to do, it's to, I think, continue to advance those kind of global frameworks of connecting um, the continuation, as Andy Carlo and other scholars do, um, the continuations of racial capitalism, settler colonialism in the United States, in South Africa, in Palestine, the global forms of borderization, militarization, and, and see that there are, um, that we can forge solidarities across geographies, across sites of struggle in converting the very materiality of racial capitalist supply chains into those sites of um, resistance. That's incredible uh, to hear. I mean, that, that level of real material impact is, is very inspiring. Um, and, it, and simultaneously, it, it reminds me of like, you know, kind of as you were saying, this uh, recontextualizing apartheid history where everybody knew somebody who was against apartheid or like had a family member who was against apartheid and, it, and it's very ahistorical. Um, and in, even in contemporary narratives, like my family in South Africa, uh, when, you, when you start talking about apartheid, like a lot of the narrative consistently is like, well, everybody knew apartheid was wrong. Nobody went along with it. But it, it's not very historical to, you know, if no one went along with it, then how did it happen? Uh, and, it, and it speaks to another thing as well of the real and contextualizing like activism it is, was very important from the US and from the UK and the London recruits, for example, like the contingent of students and workers from the Communist Party of Great Britain who went to South Africa, joined Nkonsoe Seswe and became very pivotal in, in helping the struggle was very important, but I think this, particularly part of the American narrative of it tends to really uh, center America and American students and American activists in it and say like, you know, they, through their activism on college campuses were the ones who brought an end to apartheid and it, it has, a, has a, a role in alighting the, the contributions of, of South Africans to actually having agency and ending their own oppression through as you're talking about political struggle uh, through guerrilla warfare in particular, uh, as well as the support of the broader uh, anti-colonial and anti-capitalist bloc, in particular Cuba, 
and playing a huge role in, in the struggle in Angola and, and Namibia as part of the process of ending apartheid. So that, I think that's kind of my question is how, how does the modern activism in support of Palestine risk potentially neglecting the role that that Palestinians themselves will have to play in, in ending their own uh, colonization and oppression. In addition to that, you talked earlier about the the NGOization of of activism, which I think is a, a a common theme that everybody is starting to pick up on in in all sorts of activism, whether it's uh, whether it's like the Black Lives Matter movement being subject to a level of NGOization. Uh, I'm curious how you how you've picked up on that within the the struggle for Palestine, this like liberalizing element that takes away the context of colonialism, of anti-capitalism as integral to understanding Palestine and how these two things kind of relate, like how this liberalizing of the mission and the the theory with respect to Palestine plays a role in overemphasizing what what we in the West can really do or or perhaps in under uh, under evaluating what Palestinians themselves can do or what those you know groups or nations that are in support of Palestine can do because there are still uh, similar to for South Africa that had the support of countries like Cuba uh, these historically anti-colonial nations and South Africa today is a good example that are playing a leading role in in support for Palestine so it's not all coming from the west there's a lot of global south uh, south south cooperation with Palestine that's very inspiring to see. So yeah, I guess those are two things that that I pick up on in, in observing the movement and and uh, this liberalizing, I guess, of it. Yeah, completely. And I think um, well, part of my um, work has looked at this a bit. There's a good book uh, by Chris Rossdale called Resisting Militarism, Direct Action and the Politics of Subversion. And there are key parts where he talks about how this is a kind of broader issue. It's, it's British focused, but um, how there's a broader issue of that within the British anti-militarist kind of movement. So he looks at a lot of direct action groups over the last um, few decades or so, how there's been, when you have the kind of spontaneity of direct action, people will go in and like smash up a BAE systems jet. They'll do, um, die-ins where people kind of like bats on the floor and like um, block entrances and things like that, glue themselves to buildings, all, you know, all that good stuff in direct action. Um, but note how there is a real issue of kind of reasserting colonial and whitewashing um, frameworks in relation to British anti-militarism. So one of the big things he talks about is um, the discourse around regimes, right? That, that the issue with Britain selling weapons is sells into these regimes. And these regimes are bad and they're despotic and everything else. And that they end up reproducing, not only a notion of us as civilized, but doing bad things, but it reproduces kind of orientalist and imperial notions of these barbaric despotic states going on over there, right? Um, and I think that is a big problem as well in a lot of the discussions around Palestine. And I see people who are very committed and they really, you know, clearly care. They'll go to many of the protests and things like that and the kind of solidarity meetings. Um, but there is still a big process and it links to, as I said before, this kind of exceptionalizing of Palestine in the way that South Africa is exceptionalized 
as this issue of race of racism racism as this kind of individual act rather than the very kind of permeated structure that reproduces itself to accumulate its own kind of power and profit right um and this is what happens when things like racism crime of apartheid uh, military occupation are separated from broader analytical and political frameworks of the things we're talking about of racial capitalism of settler colonialism um and of the kind of broader dynamics of oppression and resistance to it because when that happens um you then get the kind of what you're saying the ngoization the liberal human rights discourse coming in um and i think with things like palestine specifically in terms of anti-british anti-militarism related to it and there's we've seen this as well in um places like the us and europe with solidarity activisms but there can be sometimes a tendency to represent palestinians as passive victims of the of oppression right that um the kind of uh narrative of i'm trying to not be too too harsh but the kind of narrative of are oh, the, you know, the poor palestinian and you know look at you know, these, these dead people you know the palestinians have all these things tested on them and they get killed all the time look at all these dead palestinian children how awful is it um and i think there's something clearly very problematic with that um that the way in which palestinians are represented as passive victims as you say or perhaps south africans as passive victims um reproduces um not only obviously chauvinist but racist and colonial conceptions of these things and also obliterates these histories of as you're saying not only people under oppression resisting their own oppression but then these kind of south-south dialogues between places like south africa and cuba or palestine and we might say like the fourth world like the forms of indigenous or kind of black radical um movements or states which kind of post-colonial radical states which did support the PLO, did arm and finance the PLO and things like that. Like, there's an element of, and I'm sure you probably come across this too, there's like this element of Palestine solidarity in some circles and there are even some left circles that kind of distinguishes like the Palestine of today from its radical elements and links with the PLO of the of Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. But then there's also elements that when you have Palestinian resistance, such as the Intifadas, I mean, first Intifada is a radical revolutionary force which actually forces Israel to the table in the Oslo Accords. Obviously, the Oslo Accords ends up becoming what Saeed calls the, you know, the Palestinian Versailles. But um, that that forced Israel to the table with people that it was calling terrorists and would never negotiate with for decades. And I, there's a kind of um reluctance to engage with those radical histories and radical and radical presence of palestinian resistance um which i think now is being forced against again because of things like the unity intifada that we saw last year because of the radicalism because of the general the palestinian general strike and because of things like the bds movement managing to articulate a radical vision of kind of multiple converging solidarities and social forces against racism colonialism patriarchy and, and, and imperialism um across sites of struggle that's managing to kind of compete with that but i still think it is a dominating problem um so what i'm trying to kind of write in my own work in terms of palestine action and 
you know, there's still the elements of Palestine action that, you know, there's banners like um, Elbit weapons tested on Palestinian children, blah, blah, blah. But that's done, not, not always, it's, you know, it's, we're not perfect, but I think that's done in a way that does recognise us as kind of, um, I don't want to use the word ally because the word ally is awful, but the, like allies and struggle, you know, for want of a better word, rather than, oh, we are like doing this good thing to kind of save you. It's like, no, we are in dialectical struggle with you um, in this process. And, and this is the thing about um, Palestine action that I think is, re is really radical in terms of producing what I'm you know, trying to term a decolonial praxis in regards to this. It's not merely recapitulating forms of British anti-militarism to do with Palestine. That um, we We're very lucky to have Hudu Amori as the head of Palestine action, um, or one of the co-founders of Palestine action. Um, who is a Palestinian Iraqi and the way that she's managed to articulate the fact that it's not kind of largely white British people kind of um, doing this saviour complex. She's very much like we live in Britain, we not only have a privilege for living here but there is a actual historical duty because of Britain's role in the ongoing colonisation of Palestine because of things like the Balfour Declaration one of the um, biggest phrases that Palestine actually uses is Britain has been involved in the colonization of Palestine for over a hundred years. But there is actually a material and historical ongoing complicity that we um, have a duty to actually be part of the struggle in finding resolution for radical resolution. Um, so I think this goes back to, in terms of trying to um, push against these NGOization, liberal rights, kind of liberal human rights kind of framings and these kind of whitewashings of um, kind of Palestine solidarity. I think, again, it forces us to reassert the primacy of um, radical framings, radical theory, radical praxis, such as racial capitalism, such as questions of decolonization and abolition, right? That talking not of peace, talking of liberation decolonization um, and i think just a, as a kind of a conceptual and discursive level i think that does hold a lot of power but it holds even more power on the back of an actual you know concrete solidarity and, and material movement such as a, a long-standing direct action campaign no that was a that was a very comprehensive explanation um and I wonder also, I guess, in, in just musing on the subject, but the you mentioned earlier the uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Betzel, and the reports on, on Apartheid too. And I mean, these are also examples of, uh, of kind of this like liberal human rights uh, NGO kind of organizations taking a step that is very important to call this, like you said, what it is like, I mean, I also came to mind the fact that like architects of apartheid in South Africa were calling uh, Israel an apartheid state of their own kind uh, as early as like the, the 1950s when you have like uh, Henrik Verwood, who one of the founders of apartheid in South Africa calls Israel also similarly an apartheid state. So this, I think people have known it on all sides of the, the equation for a long time and they're very late in acknowledging it, but it's an important conceptual step but I also wonder, 
to what extent these reports that are kind of shaping the dialogue now uh, that are causing a lot of reactions in, in the respect of like, for example, the South African government reacted to the Amnesty International report and said, now we have to do something real, like in terms of potentially cutting diplomatic ties or no one's really sure what real next step they're gonna take. Um, but it, it has caused them to reconceptualize their solidarity with Palestine. Similarly, I've seen a lot of people in activist circles, students who, when this report came out said, okay, now something can, can conceptually change because the university has X policy on, like at Cornell, just as an example, our university board of trustees has a policy literally written into the words where they say, you know, you can make a claim to divest against a, a company the university is uh, invested in if that company is practicing. And they use the word apartheid explicitly, which I think is after, after the 80s and after the anti-apartheid movement on American campuses became more of a common thing that this was a, an explicit like delineation of this as a crime that can be uh, a justification for divestment. But I, I also wonder, and this was something I, I got the chance to talk to Andy Clarno about, what extent this kind of legalization of apartheid in the sense of turning it into a legal international mechanism, like this triggers the UN to go do something about it, which seems from just a, a basic reading of it, like as long as the UN is under the aegis of the United States as, an, as a body, um, similarly, as long as the United States like has a vested geopolitical reason to support Israel, just like they had a vested political reason to support apartheid in South Africa, a lot of these appeals to international legal doctrine will not really result in anything because they just don't fundamentally challenge the vested geopolitical interest in the system. So. That's a long way of saying, I, I, I wonder, and I wonder your perspective too on the reaction to these reports, whether it's been like a big leap forward. I know they were definitely celebrated in Palestine and, and on the converse, they were very, they triggered a lot of, uh, of adverse reactions from pro-Israel um, forces. So it seems like they're important from that reading of it. But then on the other hand, it seems like at a deeper reading, when you look at the reports, they're very based on human rights. They're very based on like a very liberal internationalist reading of human rights that don't, it's not focused on Israel's use of uh, settler colonialism, use of extractive racial capitalism. It's focused more on these like very uh, strict readings of what human rights should be in a liberal framework. So I wonder, yeah, whether these will make a big difference in changing people's mind about the situation. And then in an extension of that, whether they, they trigger some international legal challenge to Israel that is like an undiscovered option that, that exists and now can be enforced, because I don't really see what that is per se. Um, and then I guess by proxy of that, how the US and by extension, like the first world the US um, and global north holding hegemony over the world and having a vested position in support of Israel prevents all of that really in a way, like that prevents a lot of action being even possible insofar as Israel remains a, a critical military ally for the United States and um, 
I guess th those are my questions, yeah, on the subject of the new reports. Yeah, so um, I've seen, similar to yourself, um, those kind of appraisals of it. And, and, that, and I also posted it around social media as well, um, more so on the ones which have family and relatives that are where you're less political, but you kind of do that slight propaganda spreading to them. Um, I think, I think at face value, it's useful. That's what we can say. That is useful in terms of the political terrain to be able to, it's another tool, right? And this is, goes back to Nura Erekat um, and Justice for Some, that it's another tool that we can use, but in terms of a legal, discursive or political battle, especially within, you know, a political party or kind of institution such as a university, which are, which refrain from any kind of actual meaningful action or anything. Um, but it can only be seen as a kind of tool. And because, because otherwise you end up with, as you're saying, the issues of if it gets framed through those legal framings of human rights, of apartheid, which is diluted from its kind of contextual conditions as a process of racial domination um, and capitalist accumulation and continuing colonial formations, um, that otherwise we will end up with a situation, as you say, is what's happened with South Africa. Or you, or I think even less so that because um, there is such a strong kind of support for Zionism, for Israel um, throughout kind of Anglo settler colonies in, in the first world. That I, as you say, I don't think that will actually necessarily lead to any dramatic shifts or changes. Um, it may allow um, certain human rights institutions and the UN to say that they're doing something when actually they're not. But I guess the issue is that even if they did, I mean, what can that really achieve in the context of all the kind of things that we're talking about, right? So I think it requires that deeper reading that you were saying and that kind of reflexive radicalism in relation to South Africa of saying, well, this is the kind of dominant paradigm in which um, apartheid was allegedly resolved in South Africa, yet it has led to all these continuations of relations of oppression and exploitation. Um, so therefore, how do we understand this kind of general framework shift um, in relation to that? Because I think it's, you know, it had effects in, I guess, our own spaces, but I didn't see any major British news organization report on it. Um, the ones that did basically said that uh, the usual that Amnesty just hates Israel and is anti-Semitic or hates the West. <laughs> so I, I think also because of our current political conjuncture of essentially rising fascism um, and kind of like trying to reassert and reconsolidate imperial hegemonies, that um, the ability to criticize a kind of beacon of global imperial colonial relations and geopolitical relations such as Israel and Zionist colonialism, I think is even less likely to actually lead to any kind of formal political resolutions in the same way as South Africa. Um, 
so I think in terms of the apartheid framing, um, or at least through that kind of liberal human rights apartheid framing, that we can use it as a tool, but again, um, and I, I sound like a broken record, but it needs to be based upon the back of a, of a mass movement um, of ongoing sites of contestation and struggle and material concrete solidarity, but also within these broader framework shifts. So going back to the article that I mentioned at the beginning with Lana Tatour, um, where she's very heavily emphasizing, yes, it's apartheid, but apartheid disarticulated from these other relations ends up breeding the kind of problems that you're talking about of um, if there are to be any resolutions through this, which there's very likely not going to be any, um, it would only be formal kind of legal and political resolutions, which would end up leading to um, the two-state resolution, which can never really, you know, as we've seen through Oslo, can never actually really be a resolution at all, as the Palestinian Authority is essentially paid to um, police uh, and occupy its own people on behalf of Israel. Uh, Israel has outsourced its own colonization and occupation and security to the Palestinian Authority. I mean, that's, that, that's what the kind of political resolutions that Amnesty International would really lead to. Um, so yeah, so I, I think it goes back to the needs to focus on our place-based radicalisms, right? And I guess this goes back to, I guess, the, the last question of talking about the needs to, to not only recognize, but be in dialect struggle with Palestinian revolution, Palestinian struggle, and what we're seeing with um, the unity intifada and the general strike and the forms of um, resistance that goes on in day in day out. I mean, it's one of the things that I would say is that um, Palestinians are going to resist as any people do, whether people in the West know about it or not. It's just that those that, that those of us that actually have a um, political will and a attempt to practice a form of concrete solidarity have to recognise that well, it's within our own sites of struggle, our own local conditions where we can actually affect material change. And this is going back to Palestine Action, like that's, um, that's where we can do the struggle here is through those forms of material direct action. And if you're students at universities, it's through winning PDS demands, it is through advancing radical uh, shifts and frameworks uh, that can kind of I guess, permeate a broader consciousness around this that works to go beyond merely those human rights apartheid framings and all of the kind of um, political and ideological pitfalls which they end up presenting for us. Yeah, that, that was a good answer as well. And I think that that speaks to another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, maybe less specifically related to Palestine, but of course, very much related to a lot of these questions, which is the your perspective uh, on the Western left in general, and and if there's a desire within uh, a lot of the left, because I mean, you know, we're assuming that like a lot of this this action for Palestine comes from people who may consider themselves progressive or left wing in some respect, but and and. and people who may consider themselves liberal as well. But to take it from what you're describing as like kind of a, a vulgar level of it, 
uh, of, of solidarity for Palestine that focuses on the most egregious aspects of it uh, and not really the long, you know, deeply entrenched process of settler colonialism um, that, that liberalizes that, you know, as you were saying, that misunderstands exactly what's happening uh, and exceptionalizes it out of its context of a very similar procedure in, in other settler colonial instances. Um, and I've seen a lot of, like, I think as a general trend and something that our group tries to focus on is reclaiming, not necessarily a Western left per se, but reclaiming like a, a litmus test, if you will, of like communism and, and left-wing activism that's explicitly focused on decolonization, anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism and on the global South in general, because there's such a, from my perception, there's like a lack of uh, genuine commitment to uh, revolutionary anti-colonial activism on behalf of a lot of people on the left. So I wonder your perception about, I guess, first of all, like why it's so important to keep decolonialism, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism uh, as central features of synthesizing um, a communism or a model of, of communist activism. And then whether you think, you know, broader aspects of the Western left hold up to this, uh, not to say a litmus test, but hold up to this, this challenge of, of being really committed in that way, or whether, you know, I, I have seen a lot of, of activists on the left or parties that fail to comprehend exactly what's happening, fail to comprehend the broader um, analysis of imperialism at play and, and kind of decontextualize things in that way. So yeah, I guess your perspective on that uh, and the, the left's response to Palestine specifically, but just broader questions of continuing uh, racial capitalism in, in post-colonial countries like South Africa and South Africa is a settler colonial country like, like what's happening in Palestine. So it, it's different, but then also just uh, the continuing imperialism on, on all of the global South. And, continuing extraction, uh, continuing military domination, and what the what the Western left's response to that and whether it's adequate for the global South. Well, firstly, that is a massive question. I don't necessarily uh -huh. have the answers to it, but uh -huh. I can at least conceive of my, my, my own perspectives on it and from what my own readings um, and engagements with uh, kind of activists here and social movements. So, I think in the first instance, I'll start on a positive note to say that I, I do think it's getting better, um, that there, there is a kind of um, rearticulation of previous forms of revolutionary consciousness and activity. Um, but I think also drawing from Angela Davis, she says this in one of her speeches, uh, freedom is a constant struggle where she says like one of what she's noted about contemporary movements and she's talking about both Palestine but then also um, Black Lives Matter specifically around Ferguson uprisings is that there is a deeper consciousness of the intersectionality of struggles but then also these more global relations right I think that is better on the left now it's nowhere near it should or needs to be. Um, but, 
at least in my engagements with people online, at least in seeing the ways in which um, people within Palestine Action kind of engage with things or people um, within organizations here, such as like Sisters Uncut or the Kill the Bill protests and things, or um, what I've seen from comrades in terms of struggles in the US around land back decolonization, some of the discourses going on there. I think there is at least a deeper and kind of broader consciousness of these things now on the left. Um, that's, I guess, been recompeted with um, the reemergence of things like proletarian patriotism and all of that stuff, um, which I think is, you know, yes, there are kind of theoretical uh, kind of vulgar Marxist histories that, that they rely on, but I do also think that that is a product of our current kind of emerging nationalist like fascist moment too, right? Um, and, a to and an attempt to reject and repress the radical forms of movements and activity, re revolutionary activity that we are seeing. Right? I, do, I do think that that's not just relying on these kind of, obviously they were, they were wrong at the time, but we might say outdated kind of uh, Marxist and socialist conceptions of uh, a kind of unified workers struggle in a very simplistic and vulgar sense. Um, I do think it, that that is a direct response to revolutionary activity and radical kind of um, uh, recognitions of the intersectionality of struggle, but also like the intersectionality of social forms of domination. Um, I think what's uh, some positive things that I guess we say are in and around the kind of coalescing forces of what we tend to call the, the left or the Western left. Um, of, of things like abolition, of things like decolonization, um, is that I, I, it seems to be that things like mass social mass social movements, autonomous kind of social movements, especially things around um, policing and abolition, um, there are particular contestations and sites of struggle over forms of like social and political violence. Um, again, as, as in like policing is probably the, the best example here where left struggle is actually really happening. Um, I sometimes see, not sometimes, a lot of the time, I see people trying to reassert Marxist communist arguments from like the 1920s around forming certain communist parties and things. And it's like, that's just not really what's going on. And I think there's problems of trying to, again, as people have become kind of, there's been a resurgence of, um, fascism and far-right kind of politics and social forces. Um, there's also been a resurgence of certain forms of Marxism and Marxism-Leninism, which I think are not kind of trying to attempt to bring that analysis into the present of what the contestation of social forces are actually doing, doing right now. Um, in terms of, if we look at what are the major movement, kind of what we sort of talk about as major left movements at the moment, at least I can speak for Britain, is that they are not centred in around the formation of certain political parties. They are not centred around workers' struggles in the very kind of reductive way that we think about it. But it's where trade union groups are involved. Um, they are migrants' rights, direct action unions. They are sex worker unions like Decrim now. Um, and they are involved within the sites of struggle, specifically around things like policing and social and political violence of um, of neoliberal austerity 
um, of new of the kind of heightening, I guess, social fascism of militarism that we are seeing, right? Um, so I, I think just in our trying to center it around our kind of our placements before going to the kind of more geopolitical and global um, is I think there has to be a kind of re-engagement with what are the social forces that are kind of coming out and what are the things that they're actually then organizing around but it doesn't mean that you can't then reassert um, notions of class struggle um, because that has to obviously be a part of it but I think there needs to be an appreciation of where forms of social resistance are actually coming from and this is where um, texts like Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism kind of speak to me, uh, the work of anti-racist theorist um, Sivanandan and the Institute of Race Relations and Journal of Race and Class come in um, about the ways in which kind of social forces of resistance don't necessarily take the form that has been kind of theoretically prefigured already. Um, and I think that's what in talking about, you know, on Twitter, I call myself a decolonial communist. I think that's what that kind of needs, at least as a kind of like position to, to start from, um, is a recognition that there are multiple sites of struggle and resistance that are coming from multiple, a myriad of, um, this is a quote from Robinson, a myriad configurations of human experience and struggle. Um, that, that needs to just be kind of honestly engaged with rather than just trying to like box people in, um, which I think parts of the left have a real problem with, in, with, with it doing. Um, but as I say, I do, I do think that, and at least on the kind of Western left that I see, I think there is a deeper consciousness of this stuff now, right? That when someone talks about proletarian patriotism, at least most people that I see will go, that is absolutely ridiculous. The United States is a settler colony, we're talking about decolonization. Um, when talking about um, issues of workers' rights here and kind of labor struggles, I think there's more of a understanding of global relations of imperialism and the way that constitutes labor aristocracies and benefits for workers here, and benefits for racialized, but also citizen workers in, in imperial court. Um, so I think there is a, a kind of growing consciousness of it, but I think that does need to, again, I don't really have the answers for this, um, but I do think that it does need to continue to be a uh, deeper engagement with myriad social form, um, forces and myriad like um, traditions of struggle, whether they be like radical forms of autonomous feminism or things like black radicalism or things like which I, I, I tend to term indigenous radicalism or decoloniality or like Palestine radicalism that the I think these things need to be treated on their own terms um I think there's two, there's two examples I can probably give here so the one is the debates that kind of happen around things like the Zapatistas um where you get kind of Marxists and anarchists trying to claim the Zapatistas together um as either being anarchist or being Marxist and I think that recapitulates a form of kind of left Eurocentrism where the way the only way that we can understand uh, different configurations of human experience and resistance is like through our own terms but actually it's like no they actually the Zapatistas give us their own terms and that that is a form of like social political struggle an alternative form of social organization which we should you know 
recognize on its own terms. It's not necessarily saying that, oh, that, that's now the correct line that we have to follow. Um, this is something that kind of Robinson tries to urge in talking about the black radical tradition. He's not trying to decenter Marxism to go, oh, well, actually it's the black radical subject that is the primary locus and subject of history and social change. He's saying, no, this is one of a myriad of forms of configurations of human struggle, um, which we have to recognize and honestly engage with. Um, the other example I think is, um, and this is at least around my experiences, when I saw the, uh, there was the 2019 coup of Eva Morales in Bolivia. Um, and there was obviously outcries from the left, calls of support and like solidarity. Um, and luckily we had the victory of mass uh, against the fascist US-backed coup um, to continue their forms of deep, what I term decolonial indigenous socialism or indigenous influence socialism. But I think what I see around uh, the discourse around places like Bolivia is that people talk about it through the lens of socialism. They very, very rarely talk about it through the lens of indigeneity and, and indigenous struggle and decolonization. When obviously to understand um, mass and movement for socialism in Bolivia, you have to understand its relationship to indigenous struggle too, right? Um, the, the fact that the, the constitution um, enshrines the rights of Pachamama of, of, of the earth, the fact that um, it revolves around uh, a notion of plurinationalism rather than nationalism of the modern European nation state, right? It's just kind of things like that, that people, a lot of people on the left, they don't kind of articulate those things. Um, so I think kind of trying to get back to answer the question in some way is that I think, you know, in attempting to generate and articulate a, a what we might say is a decolonial form of socialism, I think it has to start from a recognition of the multiple myriad forms of um, resistance and traditions of struggle and, 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 and try to form or forge rather bonds of concrete solidarity between them in both our theory, but also um, our practice and the development of what Stephen Anden referred to as communities of, of resistance. That was an incredible answer. And I think that's a really good uh, situating of, of the problematic for the modern left in terms of, of as you, I mean, you mentioned proletarian uh, patriotism, and I think people have unfortunately had to learn what that is by some exposure to it, uh, to it actually manifesting. Um, and also, I mean, I was thinking while you were discussing of the recent drama with um, within DSA in the United States about Palestine with uh, DSA as an organization, I mean, representing kind of the largest, uh, so, you know, democratic socialist organization in the US, but having a, a really hard time figuring out what the line is on Palestine and having this huge split within the organization between uh, a caucus that is in support of Palestine wants them to expel you know, uh, a representative who was endorsed and is now shifting towards a more pro-Israel position. And then the, the group as a whole, you can't call it a party, obviously, because it's not a party, but DSA as a group having kind of a, a huge split over that. And I think that is a testament to, I mean, I, I obviously wouldn't call myself 
a democratic socialist, I'm not in the essay, but in observing it as like a, a microcosm of of practices of of this like Western left, I guess, uh, particularly democratic socialism, there's a lot to be, there's a, a, a lot of failure there with respect to Palestine. Um, I unfortunately have to go as I, I have a class uh, coming up, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about the subject. It's a subject that really matters to me and a lot of the members of our group, we have a lot of crossover with our Students for Justice in Palestine on campus and it's a cause that matters to all of us and, and should matter uh, to anybody who calls himself a communist, uh, especially in the first world. So thank you again. And I, I'm really excited to continue uh, talking to you. I think everything you you were picking up on is very similar to what I'm, I'm trying to research as well. So I'll definitely continue uh, the conversation on Twitter. And um, I guess the last thing is if, if you want to mention anything or any reading, any information that anybody listening should know as like kind of a final note, uh, I guess some, an opportunity to do like any, uh, any recommendations or anything. No, thank you for having me on. It's been really, really great. Really, really generative to speak to you, mate. Um, and as always, yeah, send me a message and just talk. Uh, I'm always, always free and happy to um, discuss these things with people because I'm very boring and that's most of my life. Um, in terms of things to recommend, I mean, I'd probably be a cliche of myself and um, recommend two things. One, on in, in talking about what I attempt to try and conceive as, or identify myself as, as a decolonial communist, it would be in, it would, it would emerge out of the interactions that Cedric Robinson attempts to engage with between Marxism and black radicalism in his book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. I think, although he doesn't talk about the forming of decolonial communism, although he does talk about socialism in his other book, An Anthropology of Marxism, I think there is something really, really powerful there and the way that he talks about the production of a thing called black Marxism, which is a, this kind of antagonistic dialectical relationship between Marxism and black radicalism. Um, so I think that's a good place for people to start in, in trying to think about these things. And then the other I would say is just to for people to follow and support if they can Palestine Action. Um, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Um, uh, Pow underscore action. Um, it should be the same on Instagram as well. Uh, let's give her a like, retweet and just support stuff and trying to um, uh, and get that pushed. Well, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too, mate. Thank you very much for inviting me. Awesome. Bye.